Well, today I'm grateful to read the scripture for uh, Scott, who's preaching for us this morning. He's traveling b- back and forth every now and then. He and I jump back between uh, both uh, campuses and are able to, to see uh, one another's uh, locations and, and, and speak. So I want to read our scripture from, this is a reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Dave. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Happy, um, happy first Uh, Sunday of Advent, which is also the last Sunday of our fall series that we've been in on uh, on the anchor doctrines of uh, the Protestant Reformation. And uh, uh, you may or may not know this, we preach the same scripture, have the same sermon title. Stacy actually writes my sermons for me each week. So we preach the exact same sermon. Uh, The sermons are different, but the text and title and and, uh, uh, themes are the same. But um, it's a great joy to, to be with you. I used to bounce over here once every two weeks. Now we're down to maybe once a quarter. I think next year it may be just once the whole year. We'll see. But uh, really good to be with you uh, this morning. And uh, so I want to start this way. Um, when we announced, when, when Patty, my wife, and I announced that she was expecting uh, our child, I, I hate it when people say we're pregnant. No, she's pregnant, mister. Um, but but uh, she was pregnant, and I was there supporting uh, that whole endeavor. And um, I remember my father saying when we announced, you know, it, it wasn't, yeah, that's awesome, that's terrific, can't wait to be a grandpa. The first words of his, out of his mouth were, well, you better start saving money. Because every kid that you have will cost you $1 million. And uh, that's not actually true. It doesn't necessarily have to cost a million dollars to raise a child. In fact, in most cases, it doesn't cost close to that. But uh, there was some truth behind what he was trying to get across. And that is, if, if you want to raise a child, you actually have to rearrange your whole life in order to do it well. You have to restructure everything. You've got to restructure your sleep patterns Uh, how you spend your evenings, uh, what you do on the weekends. You have to restructure how you take trips, uh, and you have to restructure your finances. And 
So imagine, um, you know, after 19 years, 19 and a half years of, of being a dad, my 19-year-old daughter called from college and said, I have bronchitis. And doctor says it's a $40 copay in order for them to, to treat my bronchitis and then another $5 to, you know, contribute toward the antibiotic. And I said, okay. And then it happened again. And then it happened again. And, and finally, I just said, you know what? I, I'm just, I'm sick and tired of copays. I'm done. You're on your own from this point forward. That would be silly, wouldn't it? If I've already given my whole life and restructured my entire life in order to pour into this child that, 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 that I wouldn't pay a $45 copay, right? How much more will I be there for bronchitis or when your heart gets broken or when you become anxious and depressed or when you go astray? How much more am I going to be there if I've rearranged everything else in order to raise you. And yet, it's true, isn't it, that our hearts doubt? Maybe because of something in us, maybe because of something in God, maybe because of some unpredicted future, that God is going to be there. If we slip up, if we stray, if we get distracted, if he gets distracted, if we rebel, he won't be there. Isn't that an anxious fear that we carry with us. I love that we repeated that chorus so many times, hopefully to drill it into our minds and our hearts. Bid my anxious fears, bid my anxious fears, bid my anxious fears goodbye. Because truth be told, we carry these anxious fears that, 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 that somehow we're going to get abandoned. We have abandonment issues. And God is a primary culprit for those issues, at least the way that we think in terms of God. And yet, um, this final anchor, anchor doctrine is given to us to resolve those anxious fears. And it's the doctrine that's been historically uh, referred to as the perseverance of the saints. I think the better way of putting it is the perseverance of God with the saints or God's, uh, God's dogged, resilient commitment to preserve the saints as his own. You know, Paul writes with such boldness and with such confidence here. You know, from jail in Philippians 1, he says, I'm confident. And then he starts talking about God. And, and here he's confident again in a pretty hostile environment, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. But what he says in verse 32 is this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He who rearranged everything, how much more, or how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then verse 39, nothing in all creation can ever separate us from his love. It's like the hymn goes, that soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. We're talking about the assurance of salvation here. We're talking about what Jesus talked about first when he said in John, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. 
Not even the Father can snatch you out of the Father's hand because he's so committed to his own promises that it would be an utter denial of his own person and character to snatch you out of his own hand. You can't snatch yourself out of his hand. And so, so I want to explore this theme of assurance or God's perseverance with the saints uh, under, under three headings. Neither your present nor your past nor your future will be able to separate you from, from the love of God. So let's start with the present. The present situation for the Roman Christians that, that Paul's writing to is uh, that they are dealing every single day with, with, with threats, with hostility in, in a, a climate that is not friendly to people who publicly identify with Jesus Christ. The words that Paul uses to describe this, this climate are persecution and danger. And then in, in verse 36, he says, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It was this climate that led 11 of the 12 disciples of Jesus to be martyred for their faith. It was this same climate that led Paul to later become martyred for his faith, the same person who wrote this letter. You know, just a few years after the writing of these words, the, the Roman emperor Nero began to burn Christians alive for entertainment. Just to, just to get his jollies. And that's only one case in point to illustrate the fact that anchoring to Jesus and Jesus anchoring himself into us does not give us protection from all of the difficult things that a fallen world can throw at us, and in fact, sometimes it gets harder because you're identified with Christ, as was the case for the early Christians. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. It was written before Genesis was written, and it, it features a, a man named Job. And there, there are two things about Job that become apparent from the very beginning. One is that he was the most righteous person in the whole land. That's actually what God said about him. And then the other is that he suffered worse than virtually anybody in the history of the world. There, there are those whose suffering has come close. But he is, in a sense, the, the quintessential, prototypical suffering soul. And, and, and if you read the, the account of what happened to Job, it's, like, it's just one gut punch after another. It's like a pile-on of hardship. It starts with terrorists invading his property, killing his ten children, destroying his property, wrecking his, his business and his livelihood. And then after the terrorists are gone... His health turns on him, and he, it says he's afflicted from head to toe with sores. And then his wife turns on God. You know, this only place that you feel that you have left for comfort and solace in the world, I'm out. You still holding on to your integrity? You still believing all this crap? Curse God and die. I'm out. And then his friends 
start to speculate uh, about why cosmically all these things are happening to Job, and the conclusion they reach is, you had to have done something. What are you hiding, Job? These kinds of things don't happen to good people. They don't happen to righteous people. What are you hiding? It wasn't hiding anything. And there are two responses that emerge from two people who are suffering the same exact circumstances. And, and, and Job's wife, her response is, you know, love God, I hate him. You know, curse God and die. And it says that, that Job's immediate impulse was to bow his face to the ground and, and, and to, to worship God and to say, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we hear a later echo in Paul here, don't we? Where he says, we who face death all day long, we are more than conquerors. He doesn't say we were more than conquerors or we will be more than conquerors. He says we are, even in the thick of this. It's the same kind of language that, that the Apostle John uses in Revelation as he writes uh, from prison, you know, in prison for his faith on this remote, you know, kind of Alcatraz-like island called Patmos. And, and, and he says, we are overcomers. We have overcome the world. How, how can you write these kinds of, are, are you denying reality or are you in touch with reality in ways that maybe others aren't? You know, how do we account for the different perspectives? Job's wife's perspective versus the perspective of Job versus the perspective of John or Paul. I think it's this. Job's wife is actually the one with impaired vision. You might look at Job and Paul and John and say, you guys, you know, you're not willing to face the hard stuff of reality. You need to read a little bit of Nietzsche or something, you know, to, 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 to get back in touch with reality. But in fact, the opposite's happening. The opposite is happening because Job's wife is, is not accounting for the fact that there can be invisible realities and, and an otherworldly wisdom at play here. Maybe Satan has had his way with your family, but maybe it's so that God can give Satan just enough rope to hang himself with. Maybe that's really what's going on. And in fact, the long view with Job and, and that whole story tells us that, yes, that is what was going on. You know, but even for Job in the short term, you know, he didn't just w worship and declare the faithfulness of God. He, he got into some shouting matches with God. Stuff like C.S. Lewis's grief observed that, that might even sound irreverent to the sappy, superficial, sentimental side of us that doesn't want to get into the mess and the gutsiness of things. He gets in shouting matches with God. Where are you? You mock the despair of the innocent. You know, and so there's this sort of interplay between hope and, 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 and uh, you know, maybe a, a sacred kind of cynicism. What's the difference between Job and his wife? Job's wife is one and done. Curse God and die. I'm out of here. You don't hear from her for the rest of the story. But Job keeps coming back to God, just saying, where the hell are you? What, what the hell are you up to? You mock the despair of the end. Answer me. What do you call that? You call that a relationship. 
You see, if you never resist, if you never find yourself pushing back on God in a fallen world, read Nietzsche or Ecclesiastes or something similar. Read Jesus and his response to Lazarus at the tomb when it says he weeps and, and he gets infuriated by death. You know, there's this nuanced approach to suffering that, that, that the gospel avails to us so we can be honest and so that we can lament while also having hope. And that's, that's Job's scenario. There's more than what meets the eye. That's the, the story of, of Job. But what does suffering provide the environment to cultivate. These aren't always the outcome, but they, they, they can be the outcome for, for those in whose heart the, the Holy Spirit is, is, is really, you know, arresting their hearts. One is friendship with Jesus. You remember what C.S. Lewis said about friends and how friends are made? One person looks at another and says, oh, you too? You know, when you discover a commonality, you're both songwriters. You know, you're both in healthcare. You're both, you know, you know, single and in your 40s. You're both, um, you know, married and in your 20s. You know, you're you're going through this or you're going through that. You both have suffered a miscarriage. You both have experienced anticlimax in your career. You both are trying to struggle with more success than you ever dreamed. Oh, you too, and friendship. Oh, you like. Pappy Van Winkle, you, you, you form a friendship around something. When one looks at another and says, you too. Imagine this, that every hardship you ever have to endure, imagine from, from, from the right hand of God, Jesus saying to you, oh, you too. Because that's precisely what he says. Did you read this here? He's always interceding for you. He's always engaged, moment by moment, in the same way that he was engaged with the, 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 the Christians who were being persecuted by Saul of Tarsus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He takes your hardship in mind personally. Viscerally, he owns it. See, to suffer is to move past this sort of superficial, Americanized, sanitized, you know, head knowledge of Jesus into a personal knowledge that leads us to sometimes get into a fight with him. But we emerge still talking with him like Job did. We emerge discovering new things about his character and new things about the solidarity that we have with his own son. This is why Paul would pray in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. He doesn't say I want to know suffering, but he, he wants to know the fellowship. He wants to know the solidarity that he can have with Jesus through that medium of taking up a cross. But then there's also the potential for character formation. You know, Paul writes earlier in Romans 5, you know, I, I, we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance and character and hope. I think what he's getting at is this. You will, through suffering, with the Holy Spirit working in your heart, understanding that, that suffering is part of your friendship with Jesus, you will become a better quality human with a better quality soul. That's what you will become. You know, the grief expert Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote these words. I, I don't know what, you know, her faith commitment is. I don't, I don't know if she has one, but this is incredibly insightful. 
She says the most beautiful people are the ones who have known defeat, who have known suffering and struggle and known loss and have found their way out of those depths. Yeah, I don't know how many middle schoolers and high schoolers get up at 9.30 for a church service on Sunday at InTown. But I, I can say this about my own middle school and high school experience. I felt more like I was on the outside than I did on the inside. Um, I felt intimidated by, you know, the, the cool kid clicks and, and, um, and those sorts of things. I, I felt nervous around cool. I felt nervous around popular. But here, here, sort of in retrospect, and maybe this is your experience too, if you've kind of made it through um, the slew of despond that is middle and high school, you look back and you realize, you know what, the ones who seem to struggle most as adults tend to be the popular cool kids who hived off in cliques and excluded others. And the ones who seem to be the most well-adjusted, life-giving, compassionate, kind-hearted adults are the ones who at some point experienced what it means to be left out or, or at some point experienced what it, what it feels like to be bullied or, or made fun of or made a target. I think it's just another way of you know, Paul is, is getting at, you know, just, it's just another way of saying what Paul is getting at is that, you know, cool and, and popular, they, they may win high school, but kindness wins life. And kindness is formed through being on the outside. Even Jesus learned kindness. Even Jesus learned obedience. Even Jesus learned the fruit of the Spirit through the things that he suffered. But then the other thing is that all suffering for the child of God has a shelf life. How can he say we're more than conquerors in these kinds of circumstances? He's got the long view. And all you got to do is read earlier in the chapter to see the long view about how God is redeeming the entire cosmos, how he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. But one thing that Paul undoubtedly is looking to is that God is going to ultimately bring about justice with the likes of Nero. I mean, we're in retrospect now, we're we're naming our sons after Paul and we're naming our dogs after Nero. History has a way of correcting injustice. <laughs> Empires have a way of collapsing. Predators have a way of getting caught and losing their careers publicly. But if I get no relief in this one life I've been given, here's what Paul says to that, I am sure that nothing in all creation, not famine, not nakedness, not sword, not death, will ever be able to separate you. Here's the deal. For, for children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, your long-term worst-case scenario, you know what it is? Resurrection and everlasting life. That's as bad as it's going to be for you in 100 years. Whatever you're going through right now. You know, and as Lewis said, heaven's going to look backwards and turn your agony, even your agony, into a glory like waking from a nightmare. Your best days are always ahead of you. Paul knows this. He's been formed by it. When suffering comes, if, if we are tempted to ask, can God possibly love me? Here's the clarion call from Romans 8. Do not let suffering determine your view of God's love. Let it be that God's love will determine your view of suffering. 
So remember, he was the, the ultimate sufferer and the voluntary sufferer on the cross. He who did not spare his own son. Neither your present nor your past. Well, if you knew my history, if you knew the things that I've said and done, you would know that I've disqualified myself. In the same way that suffering led Job's wife to hate God, things like guilt and regret and shame can lead us to hate ourselves. Both of which are cases that we make in our hearts for separation between us and God. Either I hate God or I hate myself, and both are barriers. And Paul is saying, nope. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You don't justify yourself. Even the faith that you have is a gift from God. It is God who justifies. It is God who determines the terms for justification. It is God who has also said to us in 1 John 3.20 that even when our own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. I love Brennan Manning, especially for what he wrote in Vulgar Grace. Don't you love that title? Here's what he said. Writing as an alcoholic, my life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. It works without asking anything of us. It is not cheap, but it's free. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try and find something or someone that it cannot cover. Well, Brennan Manning doesn't know what I've done. Brennan Manning doesn't know my history. Well, Jesus Christ does. Just like Jesus Christ knew what Saul of Tarsus had done before he became the Apostle Paul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You know, Paul writes at the end of his life and ministry, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. But so that the mercy of God could be demonstrated to, to the whole world, God chose me as a demonstration of how far his mercy can go. It can even reach a sex predator like King David who abuses his power who had his own version of a button in his office. And who is Jesus listed as all throughout the New Testament but the son of David? You know, his, his genealogy even saying Solomon was the son of David through the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Vulgar grace. Or Peter, the betrayer, or Matthew, the crook, or Mary Magdalene, the prostitute. Do I need to go on? Self-loathing is a denial of the gospel. Self-loathing can be a denial on the same level of Job's wife when she said, curse God and die. To hate yourself is just the other side of the coin of hating God. Because you too are made in his image. See, self-loathing 
dismisses what Jesus has done to defeat guilt and shame and regret. See, this is what makes grace vulgar to us. It strips us of all credit. It strips us of all presumption of independence and of free will. You know, getting the last word. God loves to forgive more than we love to be forgiven. That's why you're a Christian. He loves to forgive you more than you love to be forgiven. God loves to forgive more than you love to sin. That's why you're a Christian. What about the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Gotcha. There's one that can't be forgiven. There's one that will separate people from the love of God. Yeah. It's the most terrifying words that have ever been uttered. Matthew 12, Jesus says, Every sin will be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Spirit. Every, every word spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, those who speak against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to, to come. What terrifying words those are. You know, John Bunyan, who wrote A Pilgrim's Progress, writes in his, his little work called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners about how he was emotionally tortured for three solid years fearing that he had committed the unpardonable sin. I had a shorter six-month period in my 20s where I was emotionally tortured fearing that I had committed this sin. What I learned through that process was the original Greek matters. When you hear Stacy, you know, reciting the Greek. It's not because he's trying to look smart. Well, maybe because you're trying to look smart, but there are other reasons too. Some things do get lost in translation. And one of the things that gets lost in translation with this particular text in Matthew 12 is that the word speaks against is in the indicative mood and the active voice, which always, without exception, communicates continuous action with no end. Those who continue to speak against the Holy Spirit and don't cease to continue to speak against the Holy Spirit, namely against the Holy Spirit's testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, your only hope in death and in life. That person will not and cannot be forgiven either in this life or in the life to come. But here's what I learned through that study of the original Greek. The only people who should tremble about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is those who don't tremble. At Jesus' words, if you fear that you've committed this sin, it is a sure sign that you haven't. I love what John Newton said in the hymn, when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. I love the legal language here that Jesus is interceding for us. That's attorney language. That's lawyerly language. That's him as your defender, your advocate, always living to intercede for you and for us. Vulgar grace, 
the vulgarity of sin, the vulgarity of judgment that the sin has called upon itself. Father, you've said it. We've said it. If they confess their sins, you are faithful and just. Not faithful and merciful, not faithful and forgiving, faithful and just to forgive the sin and cleanse from all unrighteousness. Why would he use the word just? Because the penalty has already been paid. It's already been paid. And so to, 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 to get charged twice for a traffic ticket, that's unjust. To get two murder sentences for one murder, that's, un, that's unjust. You get one sentence for one crime. And, and it's already been paid. Not your past. Your past cannot outwit the smiling justice of God. Your future can't separate you either, nor things to come, it says in verse 38. Nor things to come. Did you notice how he speaks in the past tense? We are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. You see Paul doing this all the time. He did it in Ephesians where he talked about how Christ has raised us with Jesus, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is you can trust the future because you can't change the past. The, 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 the past has already happened. You've been brought in, grafted in to the family of God, and, and it's been sealed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now, in the meantime, you've got a table to remind you of this, to engage your senses. I'll finish with this. You know, what, what, if, what if I slip beyond return? You know, I, I can trust God, but I, I can't trust myself. Here's the message from Romans 8 for us. The, 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 the same grace that saves you is also the grace that keeps you. He's not only the author of your faith, he's also the perfecter of it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or as it says boldly in Timothy, even when we disown him, he will not disown us because he cannot disown himself. Remember Peter? Not one was lost except the son of perdition. So, Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel have written a beautiful book on the heart of healthy leadership, and it's a series of interviews that they did with, with a bunch of sort of well-known leaders who finished well. Um, you know, Eugene Peterson is on that list, Marva Dawn, J.I. Packer, among others, but one of the interviews they did was with James and Rita Houston. James Houston is the founder of Regent University in Vancouver, Canada, done a, a lot of great things out of that university. Uh, Rita has Alzheimer's uh, and starting to advance. And, you know, in the course of the conversation, um, you know, they started talking about, you know, do you have any fears, you know, toward the end of your life? And Rita says, you know, I always talk about how I fear that I will forget Jesus. It's hard to imagine forgetting Jesus. And James chimes in and he says, you know, whenever she says that, I remind her that it's not about how she will remember Jesus. It's how Jesus will remember her. 
even as her memory fades. Can God love me with all this suffering? Can he accept me with all this guilt? Will he keep me with all this weakness? The answer is an unequivocal yes. Will you pray with me?